Greetings, friends. It is the weekend of Sunday, June the 26th. We continue looking at the book of Job. This week will be in chapters 27 through 31. Someone has said that there are only two kinds of speakers, those who have something to say and those who have to say something. And Job's three friends are certainly that latter kind, and they've kept a dialogue going until it's finally ground to a halt. And in chapter 26, we read Job's final response to his friends. And now in chapters 27 through 31, he begins his last defense of himself. And he opens with a firm statement of his resolve, if you will, to stand fast to the very end. Uh, In Job 27, verses 1 through 6, as surely as God lives, who has denied me justice, the Almighty, who has made my life bitter, as long as I have life within me, the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not say anything wicked, and my tongue will not utter lies. I will never admit that you are in the right till I die. I will not deny my integrity. I will maintain my innocence and never let go of it. My conscience will reproach me for as long as I live. This is his sturdy answer, if you will, to these friends who tried desperately to, to, to get at every way that they could to, to, to uncover some evil that Job is guilty of. And he says, hey, I, I'm not going to say you're right. You cannot help but love the spirit of this man and that he is determined to tell the truth, whatever it may cost him. Even at the price of peace, he's not going to admit something he did not do. He reminds me in some ways of of that famous historic scene in the great cathedral at Worms, Germany, when Martin Luther was called before the head of the Holy Roman Empire. And all the assembled dignitaries and and all the the, the nobles of the empire, the princes and all the Catholic Church were there to hear him charged with heresy on trial for his life. And and, um, his, his response and his words as he's closed his answer by saying, unless I am shown by the testimony of scripture and by evident reasoning, Reasoning, unless I am overcome by means of scriptural passage that I have cited, and unless my conscience is taken captive by the words of God, I am neither able nor willing to revoke anything, since to act against one's conscience is neither safe nor honest. Here I stand. God help me. I cannot do otherwise. Amen. Now, the only difference between Luther and Job is that Luther was defending the word of God. And Job is defending himself. And as we will see in in Job's final monologue, that becomes um, this very crucial point. But he's willing to stand firm on what what he said. He's not going to give in. In verses 7 through 11, he warns these friends that if they're not careful, they may be guilty of really very malicious accusations that will merit the punishment from God that, that that they thought he deserved. In the law of Israel, it's, it's well known that if someone falsely charged someone else with a crime that they were not guilty of, the one who made the charge would ultimately be punished for that crime. And in verse 7, he says, May my enemy be like the wicked, my adversary like the unjust. The enemy he refers to here is these so-called friends. And now in verses 13 through the end of the chapter, Job repeats the arguments that these friends have said. They've, they've been telling him that the wicked are always punished. And, and Job is saying, in effect, hey, your own words condemn you. If you've really been falsely accusing me, 
you will be the ones who are going to be punished. Here's the, the fate God allots to the wicked, the heritage a ruthless man receives from the Almighty, in verse 13. Then he describes how their, their children will ultimately be killed by the sword and how he will heap up wealth and it will disappear in a day and how the wicked man goes to bed rich but wakes up poor, how terrors overtake him in a flood and the east wind destroys him and so on. And he's warning these friends that if can, they continue with this, that this is going to be their end. And then, and then in chapter 28, is a beautiful chapter and one of the most in this book. And it's a meditation. It's a prayer that Job gives um, on his endless search for an explanation of what he is going through. And he puts it under, under the guise of, of a search for wisdom, for understanding. And the first 11 verses are a very vivid description of, in the way in which we as humanity search the earth for, for hidden treasure, for gold and precious stones. Remember, Job is the oldest book in the Bible. It comes from the very dawn of civilization. But here we have this description of mining practices that sound almost like they were taken out of, you know, you know even contemporary life. And he says in chapter 28, there is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. And then he describes how, how miners work. Mortals put an end to the darkness. They search out the farthest recesses for ore and the blackest darkness. Far from human dwellings, they, they cut a shaft in places untouched by human feet. Far from, from other people, they dangle and sway. And he's referring to scaffolding that's put up on the side of mountains so that miners can get up to the mines and find the treasures that are there. And then in verse 7 through 8, he says, There's nothing in nature like man's desperate search for gold. No, no bird of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it. No lion goes there. Animals pay no attention to gold and jewels. It is, it is humanity alone that seeks these things, and they will go to any limits to find them. And the people assault the flinty rock with their hands. They, they lay bare the roots of the mountains. They tunnel through the rock. Their eyes see all its treasures. They search the sources of the rivers and bring hidden things to light. Miners often have to, to dam up water that, that seeps into their minds in order for them to work. And Job sh shows how, how men give up almost anything and, and go to any length to find gold. And then he comes to, the, to his point of saying all this. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell no mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep say, it's not in me. And the sea says, it's not with me. So here we see the reason for his analogy of the search of humanity for gold and treasures. He says that men will go to any lengths to find that treasure. And likewise, they look for the answers to all those questions and riddles of life. They can find the gold, but they can't find wisdom. And this is what he, he points out, that the, the elusiveness of wisdom. Now, what is this wisdom that Job is talking about? Well, all through, all through the book, we've seen, we've, we've, we have been confronted with the question, why does God treat Job this way? But we have the information that Job does not have. He has no knowledge of this challenge that Satan has made to God about him. And so his questioning is even deeper than ours. But but often, certainly, we, we feel this way ourselves. Life 
presents these questions, these riddles to us. And now wisdom is the answer to that question. Why? That question of why. Wisdom is the knowledge of the nature of things, the reason behind what happens. Someone has described wisdom as the right use of knowledge. And, and that is a good description. It is how to use things in such a way as to make things work out rightly. And that's what we lack. We, we can do all kinds of things with knowledge, but we do not uh, do the right things with it all the time. And, and, and maybe even often. And that's why knowledge of nuclear physics ends up with atom bombs and nuclear bombs and hydrogen bombs and things all that through history that have destroyed and, and become these instruments of war, warfare and widespread destruction. You see, humanity lacks wisdom. He, he has lots of knowledge but he has no wisdom on how to use it. And this is what Job in his long hours of, of torment is searching for. What is the reason behind these things? We love to boast about our technological ability, right? And, and a distinguished astrophysicist in Sweden once stated that the book of Genesis ought to start this way. In the beginning, there was an original cloud magnetized and perhaps a light year, six trillion miles in diameter. Sounds very impressive. You know, these scientists have discovered that was, that was what was in the beginning, or so they, they, they concluded that. And yet there, there are two questions of amazing importance that the professor needs to answer. Well, first of all, where did the original cloud come from? And second, who put it there? See, someone has said any, any man can tell how many seeds there are in an apple, but only God knows how many apples there are in a seed. Now, that is why Job says man does not know the way to wisdom. He's not, it is not found in the land of the living. And in verse 15 through 19, he describes how wisdom, it can't be bought. It cannot be found and it can't be bought. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can, it, can its price be weighed out in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, with precious onyx or, or lapis lazuli. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. The topaz of Cush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. If wisdom could be bought, the rich would be the happiest people on earth. But a lot of, as a lot of us know, oftentimes, they're some of the most miserable and have lost even the simplest enjoyments of life. Well, where does wisdom come from? How do we find the answers? And then Job tells us in verse 23, God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom, appraised it, and he confirmed it and tested it. There's an amazing scientific accuracy running through the, the analogies that Job uses in that passage. For many centuries, men did not know that wind had weight, but, but Job knew that. God measures out the waters and makes a decree for the rain. He, he makes a special way for lightning. 
these have counterparts in in scientific discoveries. Uh, but but Job seemed to understand these things. He said, in effect, that when God created the universe, that is when he made wisdom. He understood what he was doing, and he understood how it would work and all the problems that would be involved. And then in verse 28, he tells us the only way to find it. And he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. That is, when a person stands before God in respectful, loving trust of him, understanding the kind of a God that he is and that he is a God who knows what he is doing, that is the beginning of wisdom. That's where the book of Proverbs starts. We will never be able to answer the riddles of our life until we come to that place. And if we want to discover it, then then begin to obey what God says. How many can give testimony to the fact that this is what began to unravel the riddles of life? This is what Job came to understand. And then in the next three chapters, he reviews for us all that has happened in the book. In chapter 29, he's looking back at the good old days. First, first he tells us of his blessings. And, and he, he says, how I long for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone on my head and his, by his light I walked through darkness. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house, when the Almighty was still with me and my children were around me, and when my path was drenched with cream and the rock poured out for me streams of olive oil. Beautiful poetry describing the wonderful days when God's smile was on him and the blessing of life was his. And then he described the honor that he experienced. And when I went to the gate of the city and I took my seat in the public square, the young men saw me. They stepped aside. The old men rose to their feet. The chief men refrained from speaking and covered their mouths with their hands. And then he speaks of, of good deeds that he liked doing, that he delighted in doing. I delivered the, the poor who cried and the fatherless who had none to help them. I, I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. I thought I will, I will die in my own house. My days are numerous and as grains of sand. My roots will reach to the water and the dew will lie all night on my branches. My glory will not fade. The bow will never, will, will ever new. The bow will be ever new in my hand. In other words, he, he thought this was, it was going, it was going, going to go on like this to the end. The, the man who serves God will be taken care of by God and will never be put to any kind of trouble or any kind of problems. And many, many believers have this theology and, and, and even if we don't have have it to that point, we all, all of us, all of us, I think, still prescribe to a certain prosperity gospel. If I obey God and serve God and do what I know to be right, then, then God will prosper, prosper me and bless me and take care of me. And, and I'll never be exposed to any evil or any pressure. Now, Job's experience has blown that philosophy to bits, and he does not understand it. 
And he concludes that section by describing his influence and how men listened to him and how they waited for him as, as like waiting for the rain. And he, and he smiled on them. And he says in verse 25, I chose the way for them and sat as their chief. I dwelt as a king among his troops. I was like one who comforts mourners. How I wish the good old days would return, Job says. The good old days. You remember them, right? The good old days. But then now in chapter 30, we get the other side, the painful present. And he begins in the first 15 verses by describing how people mock him. But now they mock me, men younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained and put with my sheepdogs. Job goes on to describe their character and how they are evil and narrow and rigid. And, and, and then in verses 9 through 10, and now those young men mock me in song. I have become a byword among them. They detest me and they keep their distance. They do not hesitate to spit in my face. In verses 11 through 15, he describes their insults and their attacks. And then in 16 through 19, the, the anguish of this of his physical pain. And now my life ebbs away. Days of suffering grip me. Night pierces my bones. My gnawing pains never rest. In his great power, God becomes like clothing to me. He binds me like the neck of my garment. He throws me into the mud, and I am reduced to dust and ashes. And the worst thing of all for him to bear, the silence of God, is described in verses 20 through 26. I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me. You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. I know you will bring me down to death, to the place appointed for all the living. Surely no one lays a hand on a broken man when he cries for help and distress. Have I not wept for those in trouble? Have I, have, has not my soul grieved for the poor? Yet when I hoped for good, evil came. When I looked for light, then came the darkness. He goes on to describe how he feels persecuted by God, and he cries out to him as, as one who's in this heap of ruins, stretches out his hand, but God does not listen. This is the problem that a lot of us have in times of pressure, in times of pain, in times of mourning, unanswered prayer, unexplained violence, and unfulfilled hopes. That, Job says, is what hurts the most in the midst of his pain and anguish. And so he concludes the chapter with description of the misery of living. The church inside me never stops. Days of suffering confront me. I go about blackened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I become a brother of jackals, a companion of owls. My skin grows black and peels. My body burns with fever. My lyre turned to mourning and my pipe to the sound of wailing. Now in chapter 31, we get Job's last search for a reason for all this. He's going back now and trying to find the answer. He's still searching for wisdom. His theology has not stretched beyond the explanation that there may be some sin that is causing this. So he, he reviews his life from, the, from that point. First, he says that there's been, there've been no sexual misdeeds in his life. He says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. The, the book comes from the dawn of civilization, and yet Job in the world of his day knows that in order to keep clean before a holy God, he has to be careful about what he sees. He, he makes a covenant with his eyes in order to properly handle his sexual drives. He he's, has to watch his thought life, and he goes on to tell us that he realizes that if he does not, calamity will befall and unrighteousness and disaster the workers of iniquity. 
And he invites people to investigate and see if he's not truthful in this. And if anyone has found him to be a liar, he says, then may others eat what I have sown and my, my crops be uprooted. He's, he's been cleaned from the sin of, of, of this. He says there's been no adultery either. And, and he talks about that. And then in the next verses, he points out that there's been no injustice in his deeds. He has, he's been just with his servants. He's, he's been just toward the poor, through the defenseless. There's been no trust uh, in wealth, no secret idolatry. There's no gloating over the misfortune of others. He's not been stingy with his wealth. There's no hypocrisy. He's not been hiding anything and keeping things secret. And finally, he's not abused the land. There's been no pollution in, of the environment. He's been free even from this. How amazingly relevant this is if my land cries out against me and it's all its furrows are wet with tears. If I have devoured its yield without payment or broken the spirit of its tenants, then let briars come up instead of wheat and stinkweed instead of barley. And with this, the Job, the words of Job are ended. He has nothing more to say. He's baffled. He's questioning. He's tormented. Yet he's unwilling to forsake God. He keeps engaging with a holy God, and he falls silent. Now, at this point comes a very noticeable break in the book. Another voice comes in. It's a young man's voice. But here, it would, it would be helpful if we just gather up briefly what we've learned from, from the book so far. Job's questions become our questions. What can we say about the trials, the pressures, the riddles of our own life. Well, remember that Job at this point has learned that his theology is too small for his God. And that is true of us. We think we know uh, the scriptures. We think we've got God boxed in and we understand how he's going to act. And just as surely as we do, God is going to do something that will not fit in our theology. He is greater than any study of humanity of the, of the humanities about him. He, he is not going to be inconsistent with himself. He never is. He, he's not capricious. He's not, he is not angry and upset and acting out of malice. He is a loving God. But his love will take forms of expression that we don't understand. And we have to face that fact. And up to this point, Job has, has had his faith in the rule of God. But now at last he's begun to reach out um, in, to exercise to trembling, tremblingly to exercise faith in God who rules that, and and that's a transfer that I think that all of us have to come to. And the second thing that we can see at this point in the book is that Job's view of himself is very inadequate. He has been defending himself. He has been going back and thinking of all his good deeds. We all do this, don't we? When trouble strikes, we all tend to think to ourselves, well, why should this happen to me? By that we mean, you know, I haven't done anything wrong. I've been perfectly well-behaved. Or the people we love that we see things happen to, well, they haven't done anything wrong. Why should they or why should I be subjected to this kind of torment? And all this makes us realize as we see Job that he and we also have very little understanding of the depths of sin's attack on us and the very depravity of our own hearts. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things. We do not believe that, do we? We don't. And it's, de- and it's desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah seventeen nine. The one thing God teaches us by these pressures and, and problems of, of life is to understand that there are depths of sin within us that we're not aware of. 
We, we need Paul's words in chapter 4, 1 Corinthians, where he says, but with, with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself that he had not dealt with, but I am not thereby acquitted. Paul says that God knows more about him than he knows about himself. And the third thing that we need to see in Job is that his self-vindication explains this silence of God. Why does God not help this man? And I think there's something to the fact that as long as we are defending ourselves, as long as we're going to do this on our own and think that it's about us, God will not defend us. There's a theme that runs throughout all the scripture from the beginning to the end that says, as long as you and I want to justify ourselves, then God will not justify us. And as long as Job thinks that he has some righteous ground on which to stand, God remains silent. It's true in my life as well. It's true in our lives. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount by saying, blessed is the man who is poor in spirit, who is bankrupt in himself, who has come to the end. When we shut up and stop defending and justifying ourselves, God rises up and takes our cause. And that's what we, we will see in the, in the book of Job. God will begin to speak on Job's behalf. In the little book of 1 John, we read, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is our lawyer, our defense counselor. But as long as we keep trying to justify and explain everything on the basis of our goodness, He has nothing to say, but when we quit, then he rises up. He takes our case before God the Father. This is probably the greatest lesson of the book of Job, and it's the one that's hardest for me to learn. So may God help us to understand that as long as we insist on trying our own case, God will be a gentleman, and he will let us go ahead. But when we stop, then... God of the universe defends us. Amen. And God bless.